Please pray with me. And Father, now we ask that your grace and your mercy would be upon us. Father, it has been such an overwhelming season for so many reasons for all of us. And God, we know that the only way in which we can not only cope, but to thrive and flourish in all of this is through your presence, your presence that is with us, that is empowering us, that is energizing us to be faithful and obedient. And Father, it's times like these as we gather together, even in this online digital platform, that we sit at your feet, asking for your spirit to utilize the very word of God to do its work of solidifying our identity in Jesus, to nourish us through the illumination of the spirit of God and for the promises that you give to us. Lord, we ask that you would just lift up our hearts and our minds so that we can stay faithful in the time where so much unfaithfulness is just everywhere, seemingly coming from everyone. God, we look to you, the faithful one, to be faithful to us, your people. Oh God, we pray now that you would do it through the preaching of this word, and therefore you would bless it in spite of the messenger who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, when I was a little kid, there was a popular cereal that everyone apparently was eating. Maybe you've heard of the brand of cereal. It's called Trix. Yeah, you remember Trix? If you do, I imagine it's because you remember the commercial that advertised the cereal. You know, that rascally rabbit trying to get his hands on a bowl of Trix. And just when he's about to get it, a bunch of rascally kids foil his plan. And as they take the bowl of tricks away, the tagline for the cereal always comes out. Silly rabbit, tricks are for kids. <laughs> Silly rabbit, tricks are for kids. For some reason, as I was preparing this message, my brain kept spinning that tagline all throughout my head to the point where it created its own tagline for this sermon. You know what the tagline is? It goes like this. Silly Christian, life is for the child. Silly Christian, life is for the child. Now, I know what you're probably thinking right now. You're thinking, you got a weird brain, PJ. Yeah, I maybe do have a weird brain, but you know what? It's my brain, and therefore, I can understand why it does. And let me explain to you why it did what it did by asking you a very odd question. What makes a Christian silly? What makes a Christian silly? And when I say silly, I don't mean this harmless lack of seriousness. No, I mean dangerous abundance of stupidity. What makes a Christian dangerously stupid, or to put it more simply, what makes a Christian an utter fool? If you ask that question of the Apostle Paul, he will always spit back out to you the same answer every single time. See, according to the great Apostle Paul, what makes a Christian utterly foolish, dangerously stupid, is when they live a childish life rather than a childlike life. Now, you're probably asking yourself, well, what is the difference between the two? Well, that's what today's sermon is going to be about. As we take a look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, here the Apostle Paul is going to show us that as Christians, one of the most foolish and dangerous things that we can do to ourselves and to the people around us is when we have the mindset of a childish person rather than the mindset of the child of God. And so, with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today to help parse all this out. First, we're going to talk about the abnormality of childishness, the abnormality of childishness. And then we're going to talk about the attraction to childishness. 
And then we're going to end it with the abolishment of childishness, the abnormality of the attraction to, and finally, the abolishment of childishness. Let's begin with the first point, the abnormality of childishness. Read again with me the first two verses of our passage, verses 1 and 2, where Paul writes the following. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is an owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until a date set by his father. Okay, pause it right there. Your attention, please. Here, Paul is describing a situation where apparently you have a child who owns lots of stuff, and yet he is treated as if he owns nothing, i.e. he is treated like a slave because he is under the management of what Paul refers to as a guardian. Now, to our modern ears, this thing that Paul is describing just sounds completely foreign to us, so completely unrelatable because we don't have anything that Paul is describing here that matches our culture today. But not so for the original audience who received this letter, the Galatian Christians. What Paul is describing here in these two verses would have made total sense to them because what Paul is describing happened all the time. You see, let me explain. Back during this day, whenever a wealthy individual had children, they wouldn't raise their kids. You know what they would do? They would basically buy a slave and make that slave be responsible for taking care of the kids. These guardians were slaves who were responsible for managing the children of the household of the master. And when I say management, I'm really being kind of gracious there because this is not the kind of management for those of you who have nannies would manage your kids, you know, with all the kisses and snuggles and gifts and all the nurturing and kind words. No, guardians back then were notorious of being some of the most vicious, vile, and cruel caretakers of children in the ancient world. Just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about here, consider this quote from theologian John Stott as he gives you a bigger picture from a cultural standpoint of what guardians were like. Listen to what he says, quote, The Greek word for guardian means literally a tutor. He was usually himself a slave whose duty it was to conduct the boy or youth to and from school. He was not the boy's teacher so much as his disciplinarian. He was often harsh to the point of cruelty and is usually depicted in ancient drawings with a rod or cane in his hand. Now, these guardians, these slaves were known to be so vicious to the kids. And here's what's so crazy. The father gave full consent. Yeah, the father gave full consent because in a sense, these slaves would beat these kids because they didn't want to get beaten by the master of the household if their children acted out in public. Now, you don't have to be a parent, but I know, especially if you're a parent, this kind of setup just sounds so messed up, so atrocious to you. Why? Because we all know that a child's relationship to their father should be more important and more influential than any other relationship, especially a relationship with a slave. And yet, in the way that these guardian arrangements worked back then, that's essentially what happened. A father's relationship to his child took the back seat to where the most important and most influential relationship for a child back then was a relationship to a slave. And we hear that, and I don't care what cultural background you come from, I don't care what age you're living, we all know that is inherently wrong. That is instinctively evil. And that's precisely Paul's point. Read again to what he says here in verse 3. He writes, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Here, Paul is making an analogical comparison between the messed up arrangements children had with slaves, okay, to the broken 
arrangements that God's children had with creation that still goes on to this day. You see, the Bible tells us that when God created man, he created man in his image. And what that basically means is that when God created us, he didn't create us to become subjected to anything or to be slaves of anyone. No, he created us to bear his image, which is simply another way of saying to be God's children. That's what it means to bear someone's image. You are that person's child. My children bear my image and God's children bear his image. And one of the practical outworkings of what it means to bear the image of God is that we would have authority, we would have dominion, we would have rule over the whole world. Consider what it says in Genesis 1, where starting in verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, and the livestock, and all the animals of the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Okay. Now what I just read to you describes what theologians refer to the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate, which is basically God commissioning the human race to have authority, to have rule over the face of the whole world, starting with Adam and Eve, our very first parents. But of course, that doesn't end up happening. Because if you're familiar with the Adam and Eve story, what happens? The devil, Satan, comes in the form of a serpent, enticing and deceiving our very first parents to disobey God, to eat from the tree that God forbid them to eat, okay? thereby causing the first original sin, causing the downfall of the whole human race. And what happens as a result? There is now a reversal of dominion to where instead of mankind ruling over the world, the world now rules over mankind. Which really begs the question, how in the world can something that was designed to be subjugated by man capable of subjecting man? How is it possible for something that was supposed to be dominated by man now able to dominate mankind? Well, Paul would say it's because of the condition that sin has caused us to where now something that was inferior to us, the world, becomes superior to us, right? What am I talking about? I'm talking about the effect of sin. The effect of sin. Do you know what the Bible says sin does? Sin causes us to be very self-absorbed, to be very self-centered, to be very self-worshipping, to be very self-grandizing, to be so self-promoting. Hey, who does that sound like? Anyone that you know? Parents of young kids? Yeah? You ever heard that scream? Give it to me. It's mine, mine, mine. I want it. I want it. I want it. Yeah. Sin makes us into childish people, right? Little kids, like in pre-K and toddler. Do you think it's a coincidence that Paul says, as he describes how the world is able to rule over mankind, as referring to the elementary principles? What is elementary principles? What does that mean? Well, it means exactly what it sounds like. It's referring to the very basic rudimentary level that is able to be engaged by someone who is so childish in their mindset. You know, a child who is like a toddler, two, three years of age, they're not capable of engaging beyond the elementary level, right? 
because they are just so underdeveloped physically, emotionally, psychologically that they can't go beyond that level. And in a sense, when Paul says that the world is able to rule over mankind by the elementary principles, it's describing how the world can control a being that was designed to rule over it. Because we have fallen under the condition of sin that has left us in such a spiritual, toddler-like state of mind, where we are so self-absorbed, where we are so full of ourselves, we are so narcissistic that it's all about me, me, me. That is what sin does. Sin causes us to revert to such a childish, self-absorbed, self-worshipping state of mind. It's a concern that Paul has echoed many times in other parts of his writings. For consider what he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where starting in verse 1, he writes this, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger and you still aren't ready. For you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you're controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like childish people of the world? This is what sin does. Sin makes us utterly childish. And let me ask you, do you think it's a good idea to ever let a childish person to have any authority in this world? Do you ever think it's a good idea for someone who is just pompous and full of themselves and says, me, 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 having any authority over the world? I mean, can you imagine the danger, the damage, the destruction such a childish person could have in the world? And I know exactly what you're thinking. Pastor, we don't have to imagine it. It's already happened. It's happened for the past four years and come November it might happen for another four years. Yeah, that's right. And yet, Look at from his standpoint, the harshness, the hostility, the humiliation that the world throws at him, evidenced by his constant complaint about it on his Twitter feed. And look at it from the standpoint of the effects that this man has had in our country, in this world, the division, the disunity, right, the distrust. And furthermore, look at how the world sees the office of the presidency now because of this individual. There's just so much disregard, so much disrespect for him and sadly, his office. See, life teaches us that whenever a person who is childish rules over the world, it is not the way it's supposed to be. It is never a good thing. And because that is so, the world, meaning the people of the world, the leaders of the world, the institutions of the world, and even the physical world itself will always respond to such a person with the harshness, hostility, right? And even the humiliation that children received back in the ancient world from their guardians, you see. And here's what's so crazy. Look again at what Paul says here in verse 9. I read, but now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You know, for the life of me, I don't understand and I can't apprehend why President Trump wants to run for re-election. Have you thought about that? Because if I was him 
And my first term was what he had to go through, where he was constantly bombarded with so much hatred, so much hostility, so much humiliation. If I were him, I'd be like, you know what? I think come November, I'm just going to sit this one out. I'll let someone else kind of fill in. Okay, I think I'm done. You know, I had my fill. Thank you for it very much. I mean, that, if I was in his shoes, that's how I think I would be. But here's what's so crazy. The Apostle Paul would say back to me, no, John, you're lying. You're not being true to yourself. Because you, along with every other human being that walks on this earth, if you guys were in Trump's shoes, you would be doing exactly the same thing. You also would run for re-election. Why? Because in spite of all the harshness, all the hostility, all the humiliation this world would throw at us because of our childish ways, there's still something in us that craves, that longs, that is attracted to childish ways. Now, how in the world do you make sense of that? Well, let me attempt to do that now by going to my next point, the attraction to childishness. Let's read again verse 9, but this time, this time let's include verse 8. Listen to what Paul writes. He says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Okay. So here... Paul finds himself feeling very, very frustrated at the Christians he's writing to, the Galatians. And why is he so frustrated? Because they're regressing back into childish ways. And the obvious question is, why in the world would these Christians, or any Christian for that matter, regress to childishness? Especially when you consider the harshness, the hostility, the humiliation the world would put upon you for being so childish. Well, if you consider the psychological understanding of regression, I think it would shed some light. You see, psychologists tell us that adults will regress to childish ways because they're confronted by an overwhelming situation or scenario that they simply don't want to acknowledge, they simply don't want to face. And so they'll be in some sort of repressive, active denial of it. Consider this quote, quote from the National Institute of Health where it says this about regression, quote, regression is an unconscious defense mechanism which causes the temporary or long-term reversion of the ego to an earlier stage of development instead of handling unacceptable impulses in a more adult manner. Regression in adults can arise at any age. It entails retreating to an earlier developmental stage emotionally, socially, or behaviorally. Insecurity, fear, and anger can cause an adult to regress. In essence, individuals revert to a point in their development when they felt safer and when stress was non-existence, end quote. Hmm. As weird as it sounds, people regress to childishness so that they can feel safer, which is so ironic because by doing so, they're actually exposing themselves to more danger, harshness, hostility, humiliation. It's one of those odd paradoxical behaviors of the human psyche. Here, a person is reverting back to a state where they had no control, just so they can live under the illusion that they are in control? I mean, it just sounds so overly complicated, almost as if you need a PhD to understand what's really going on. But in actuality, it's not that hard at all. You don't need a PhD. In fact, it's something that even little children could apprehend, evidenced by the children's stories that we tell them. Case in point, do you guys know the story of Chicken Little? It's a story I have told all my kids for the past 10 years. For those of you who aren't familiar, it's about a little chick named Chicken Little 
just kind of wandering off into the forest, going for a stroll, without, where without warning, an acorn hits her on the head. And what is her reaction? She starts freaking out and starts screaming at the top of her lungs, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And she's just doing this all throughout her wandering into the forest. And every animal she encounters, she just tells in this contagious state of fear to where they start freaking out as well. Now, one of the animals that she and the other animals encounter is Foxy Loxy, a very cunning and also very hungry fox. And as he sees all these terrified animals led by Chicken Little, he decides to take advantage of it and he tries to assure them, guys, don't worry. I know the way to the king and he will solve all of this for us. So please follow me. And sure enough, they follow him. But if you know the story, you know Foxy Loxy was not taking them to the king at all. He was leading them to his den where he proceeded to eat them. <laughs> and that's how the story is. It's like so depressing. One psychologist by the name of Dr. Gregory Jantz gives us some insight on what we are to take away from this story. Take a listen to what he says here. Quote, the danger to Chicken Little was not an impending celestial apocalypse. It wasn't even a small hard object hitting her head. The danger to Chicken Little was her own panic-driven conclusion about the acorn. Perhaps if she'd been less panicked about the sky falling, she would have remembered that foxes are not generally trustworthy where chickens are concerned. By concentrating on the imaginary danger, she failed to recognize the concrete one. At the beginning of the story, before running into the fox, the danger to Chicken Little was an internal one, not an external one. This is the essence of anxiety-driven fear. The internal overshadows the external. The thoughts of what if overshadows the reality of what is, end quote. Why are people attracted to childish ways? Well, it's because like Chicken Little, they have an internal fear that overshadows the external fear that we should have of a world that devours childish people. And what exactly is this internal fear? Well, Dr. Jans calls it anxiety-driven fear, what Paul would call it something else. In fact, he indirectly alludes to it in verses 4 and 5. Take a listen to what he says there. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What is the opposite of an adopted child? It's an orphan, right? A child that has no parents, someone who is left to fend for themselves. And how do orphans tend to look at the world? Isn't it pretty much how Chicken Little looked at the sky when the acorn hit her? That essentially the world is falling, falling apart. And in that frenzy, frantic state of mind, a person will do anything, follow anyone, believe any idea, if it'll give them some sense of control. And that's essentially what happened with the Galatian Christians. They reverted to childish ways because they were attracted to the childish promises that they could have control, just like Chicken Little trusted Foxy Loxy's promises of leading her to the king. Because what is the king? A king is a symbol of control. This is why Paul is so frustrated at the Galatians. He is frustrated at their fear of an orphan, their fear 
of an orphan. It's a fear that has pervaded everywhere, and sadly, it has pervaded churches as well. So many Christians, even now, struggle with the fear of an orphan. In fact, our church struggles with this fear. All of you struggle with this fear. Now, before any of you react with a defensive way by saying, oh, pastor, I don't have the fear of an orphan. What are you talking about? I, I don't have such kind of, such kind of anxiety and, and, and fear pervading my life. But before you come to that conclusion, I'd like to show you uh, a checklist, right? A two different checklists side by side that I get from a book entitled The Gospel-Centered Life. And the pastors who wrote this put together a comparative list that describes the mindset and the behaviors of those who are driven by the fear of an orphan and those who have the confidence of being a child of God. Let's have it up on the screen. Let me read to you. According to them, an orphan-minded person or the person who struggles with the fear of an orphan has these kinds of characteristics. Anxious about friends, money, school, grades, etc. Feels as if no one cares about you. Always needs to look good. Someone who has a very unteachable personality. Needs to always be right. Strong will with ideas, agendas, and opinions. Their solution to failure is to just to try harder. They tend to have a critical spirit, always complaining, always bitter. They always have a tendency to be critical and tear other people down. And they always tend to compare themselves to other people. But now let's move over to those who have the mindset of a son or daughter. This person feels freed from worry because of God's love for them. They feel forgiven and totally accepted. They're not afraid or fearful of God. They're always teachable by other people no matter who they are. And they don't always have to be right. They're willing to trust less than themselves and more in the spirit of God. They're aware of their inability to fix life, people, and problems. They're able to take risks and even to fail. And they're always open to criticism because they rest on Christ's perfections. And they have a real sense of satisfaction of God within their very souls. Okay. Now let me ask you, as I was going through those comparative lists, where did most of your mental checks checked off on? Was it on the side of the orphan or was it on the side of the son and daughter, the child of God? I'm willing to bet that like me, most of your checks landed on the side of the orphan. And that's the fear that we all have. And it's so disruptive to the point where it seems like we can't do anything right. We can't do work right. We can't do our marriages right. We can't do relationships right. We can't do church right. We can't do God right. Which means as you hear the scripture's charge of the church that we are to be a blessing to the world, you can't help but to feel, how can I when I just don't feel blessed at all? How can I go out and give when I feel like I'm neglected? Or I should be neglected because I'm a nobody, worthless piece of trash. That's the fear of the orphan. And it robs us not only of our identity, but it handicaps us of living out the kind of life that we wish we could live. A life that really blesses others, not curse them. A life that enriches others, not impoverishes them. A life that breathes life into people, not sucks it out of them. This is the pervasive struggle. And the question is, how do we overcome it so that we are not a curse to ourselves or to the people around us? And this leads me to my final point, the abolishment of 
childishness. Let's read again verses 4 and 5, but this time we're going to include verses 6 and 7. Paul again writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Here, Paul does straight out how we can overcome childishness. And how do we overcome childishness? We overcome childishness by being a child. In other words, in order to stop being childish, we have to become more of a child, specifically a child of God. You see, if the thing that drives us to be attracted towards childishness is the fear of an orphan, that means we have to find some way of cutting off that fear so that we're no longer drawn, so that we're no longer compelled, so that we're no longer drawn into childish ways. And guess what? Paul says that's exactly what God did in the gospel. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is the message that says God the Father sent his one and only true child, the second person of the triune head, God the Son, into the world so that he would live what was basically an abnormal life for him. You see, the immortal Son of God became the mortal Jesus Christ. And instead of living the life that he should have lived, that he was entitled to live, you know, a life of comfort and privilege because of his status as the one and only true legitimate child of God, he instead suffered the consequences, the punishment of being a childish person. Jesus Christ, as he walked on this earth, suffered nothing but hostility, humiliation hatred and harshness. Jesus Christ was treated as if he was the most childish person of all as he lived in this world. And here's what's so odd about it. Jesus was far from being a childish person. At no moment in his life on earth did he ever self-promote himself? Did he ever self-worship himself? Did he self-center himself on anything that was happening around him? Never did he say, hey guys, you see all of this? It's all about me. It's all centered on me, which is actually true. And yet Jesus did not do that. He did not self-grandize himself. He did not self-promote himself. He did not self-worship himself. He did not even make it about himself at all. And the question is, why, knowing all this, would Jesus be treated this way even though he was not a childish person? The answer is quite simple. It's so that you, who is by nature childish, will be treated as if you were Jesus, as if you are the one and only true child. Let me say that again. The reason why Jesus was treated as the most childish person of all is so that you and I, who by nature are childish, would be treated as if we were the one and only begotten true child of God, that we'd be treated as Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, okay? That is what Paul means in verse 4 when he says that Jesus was under the law. He suffered what you and I should have suffered. He suffered the full penalty for all of our childish ways. And in exchange, he gave to us his identity, his worth, his works of being a true child of God. So instead of us being humiliated, instead of us facing the hostility of God, 
instead of us suffering the harshness of God's wrath, we would be received with love and acceptance. And the only reason why all of this is happening, the only reason why God orchestrated all this is because God loves us with a forgiving, life-transforming, eternal Father to love. That is how we receive these benefits of being God's child. We must believe this is how and why God loves us. Because by nature, He is a fatherly, loving person. In fact, He is the only true fatherly, loving person. Okay? This is what the gospel teaches us. This is how you overcome your childish ways. This is how you overcome the fear of an orphan, by receiving the love of the Father, to where now your status is that of a true adopted child of God. Here's my question, NCF. Do you get that? Do you understand that? If you do, then you will begin the process of relieving the groan of creation. Let me say that again. If you start understanding this and believe this more and more, you begin this process of relieving the groaning of creation. Do you know that this world that you and I are living in is groaning right now? Yeah, this world is groaning. What is it groaning about? Listen to what Paul says here in Romans 8, starting in verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be relieved, excuse me, revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying this world that you and I are living in, it is so sick and tired of ruling over childish people. And it is yearning for the true children of God to once again emerge and to rule over it so that as it does, all the blessings of God would flow through the children of God out into the world and to the people in it. See, this is how we are to live our lives. This is the destiny that God created us for. This is the purpose in which Jesus died on the cross and rose again for your sins so that we would be changed and transformed by the love of the Father. And as children of this Father, we will go out and rule over this world where the world would gladly receive our authority over it because it recognizes that the authority that we have over the world is the same kind of authority that our Father has over us. It's not an authority of cruelty. It's not an authority of subjugation. It's not an authority of slavery. It is the authority of fatherly love. NCF, have you received this fatherly love? Have you remembered this fatherly love? And are you continually reminding yourself of this fatherly love? I pray for the sake of this world that you do to the day you see Jesus face to face. Let's do that now by praying together. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you giving you thanks and honor and praise for the fact that you have loved us by very nature of who you are. You are the Father. Before anything else, before you were labeled the King, before you identified yourself as the Sovereign One, before you became the Creator, 
you were always, from eternity past, the Father. And you were the Father to your one and only true Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in that beautiful love that you have, there emerged this wondrous, glorious person of the Holy Spirit, this great, wonderful, mysterious, triune God of love that manifests in the creation of this world and through the creation of man so that we would represent you well in this world. And yet, Father, we know that we have forfeited our rule by living in sin, by being childish. Oh God, would you forgive us and free us from our childish ways and let it be by us knowing and remembering and constantly relishing in the beautiful truth of the gospel message that we are not children under the authority of a cruel guardian, but we are under the freeing, loving bondage of our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. God, help us to remember this all the days of their life. So with each passing day, we become more and more the kind of people that this world is groaning us to be, people who are a blessing to the world and the people in it. Oh God, would you hear this prayer now for we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen.